Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. There's a lot going on, and when I get to this point after a busy morning like this, when we've got a couple of uh, extra things going on, sometimes I'll say, I'm going to try to keep it short. And uh, lately, more and more people have said, why? Why do you want to keep it short? It's not where it's like we're in that big a hurry. It's Sunday. It's church day, right? So I'm going to keep it long today. It's going to be a long, long service. Now that's that. I, I just, I'm just not going to bend over backwards to, to cut it short. It doesn't look short on paper, but it's still kind of short in my mind. I want to, uh, I hope you don't think I'm dragging this out. Every, you know, we're on part nine of our Holy Spirit series today, and uh, I'm not near done. And, but it's never my intention, oh, I can't squeeze two more messages out of this series. I'm always looking ahead, you know, what, what, what else do I want to talk about? But every time I get into this, I think I'm going to talk about this. I think, no, this really kind of needs to be established first. And I think, for me anyway, in preparing this and studying this stuff, it just becomes a richer and richer subject. And there are some things that we are going to get into soon. I keep thinking, I thought by the third or fourth message, we would be diving deep into chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. We haven't gotten there yet, and we won't get there today, except for maybe just uh, tangentially. But we will, I think, the next time I pick up this series, we will be in chapter 14. And I'll get into why here in a minute. And the reason I say when I pick up this series is because next week I want to do a teaching on water baptism. We're going to be doing the water baptism two weeks from today. Uh, And of course, I'll say some things about it then as well. But with the baptism service taking place, I want to do a teaching on why water baptism, what it is, the history of it, and so forth next week. So especially if you are being baptized, if you already signed up for that baptism service, you don't want to miss next week. This is some important groundwork. Uh, And then again, we'll pick that up. Uh, some, some final remarks on that two weeks from now before we do the baptism service. And then, God willing, we'll pick up 1 Corinthians chapter 14 three weeks from today. All right? So somebody help me three weeks today remember what we talked about today. Now I've got it written down. It'll all come back to me. Uh, we started this back on Pentecost Sunday. We talked about the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given. And we jumped right in after that into a message on tongues, which was kind of getting the cart before the horse, but not really because tongues was one of the first things that manifested on the day of Pentecost. So we wanted to talk about it a little bit. And then we talked about the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it, was, it was so important to spend that time reminding ourselves, even though we know it doctrinally, uh, we, you know, every one of us has probably been uh, guilty of referring to the Holy Spirit as it uh, from time to time in, in conversation because we still picture him as a force, as an energy, uh, not as a person, a full-fledged member of the Godhead, even though we know that he is. Uh, and we talked about the, the power to be witnesses. We talked about the Holy Spirit and how he guides us. And we talked about, uh, we did a little intro to the gifts of the Spirit, and then two weeks ago on 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is the great love chapter, and we were reminded that, uh, and, and that was still, two weeks ago was my favorite message to preach in this series, because I think it just, it 
nails down once and for all, if you read it right, why that chapter is there when you see it in the context of particularly chapter 12 and 13, but also remembering that this is all one letter. Paul didn't write these things with chapter headings. That the love chapter, far from saying the gifts are unimportant, love is what's important. All Paul was saying was the gifts are important, therefore it's important to do them right. So let's look at what love is because it's only love that's going to allow us to do it right. Right? So then, um, last week, we looked at the fruit of the Spirit, which is, again, this is part of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, having the Holy Spirit. If we are mature believers, we will bear fruit. And what was that word? What, the, the truth that we brought out last week is that the fruit of the Spirit is not like the gifts of the Spirit. God does not distribute the fruit as he sees fit from time to time. He does that with the gifts. He might say, Greta, today I have a tongue for you. Doug, today I have a word, a, a word of prophecy I want to bring through you. Or anybody else who so desires to be used uh, to bring forth that gift that moment. But he does not say, today I'm going to supernaturally grant you the fruit of faithfulness. To you, you're going to have kindness today. No, the fruit is there in all of us. And this is what we will begin to manifest. It, it should be obvious to ourselves and to everybody who knows us that we have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, all of it. And that this, the more we display that fruit, the more that, that that is one of the sure signs of spiritual maturity, not flowing in the gifts or any of the other things we talked about last week. Uh, that fruit is in there. We need to cultivate it to cause that which is on the inside to be worked to the outside. That Greek word, katergatsamai. Now, today, uh, well, let me, let me kind of rehash a couple things because we're going to describe the gifts a little bit today. It's becoming, as I mentioned, at least twice already, I think, it's becoming more and more common for traditionally cessationist churches, and you remember what that means, churches who have the official doctrinal stance that the gifts are not for today. Um, but that that position is becoming more obviously indefensible from the scriptures. There's a, we cannot honestly read the scriptures and say, and, and come to this conclusion. And again, more and more, traditionally cessationist uh, congregations are, are recognizing this. But there's a difference between recognizing that the gifts are for today and embracing and obeying the Holy Ghost when it comes to that. Uh, this is kind of a funny example. Um, I was reading through a commentary, one of my favorite commentaries, which is the general editor was F.F. F. Bruce. And uh, I was telling, uh, I think, I know Pastor Mike and I were talking about it, I don't know who else I shared it with, David, I think, that there's a, uh, there's a, a verse in, uh, I'm going to read it for you, it's in 2 John, verse 10, there's only one chapter in 2 John, but, but most of you are familiar with this, in beginning in verse 10, it says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. This is a verse that many Christians over the years have used to keep the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses out of their house. I can't invite you in because 2 John 10 and 11 says, I can't. I can't welcome you into my home. I can't even say, I can't greet you. You know, 
get thee behind me, Satan, and get on down the road to my neighbor's house or whatever. And some, sometimes we might struggle with this uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, everything else we read in the New Testament urges us to be hospitable, right? To strangers. Well, where's the hospitality? I can't give a Jehovah's Witness a glass of water. I can't welcome him into my home for a discussion. It just seems to run counter to so many other things uh, I read and the nature of Christ himself. What is it about? It's an embarrassing verse for me to read. You know, I want to welcome somebody into my home so that I can speak with them. But this verse, uh, uh, Bruce describes it as churlish and how the church has struggled with it for years. Well, he goes on in his commentary to say, if we, under, if we understand the context, and I'm, I'm totally uh, not butchering, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just giving you sort of a, an expanded version of what he said. And it's not just him. He didn't, he didn't invent this. This is a widely understood interpretation of this passage, which is when he's talking about your house, when he talks about the elect lady, probably the best way of understanding that is the church. The churches were meeting home to home. And the church was, uh, was, was to guard the pulpit carefully. And all John is saying here really is if somebody comes in as a preacher, I, I have this teaching I want to share. You don't just say, hey, bring it. Sounds different from what we've taught, but hey, we're all about welcoming and fellowshipping and God bless you, whatever you say. He says, no, you check out their doctrine first. You don't give your pulpit, you don't give your endorsement to somebody who doesn't preach the truth of Jesus Christ the way it was delivered to you. And so it's all resolved. But what was funny, and the reason I bring it up, is he comments on other commentators. And he says, you know, the apparent churlishness of this verse has been a source of embarrassment. Uh, and then he names another commentator and says, he simply declines to heed the injunction. In other words, what, this, what another commentator had said was, this is what the Bible clearly says, but I'm not going to do it. And it's funny, but it's, that's pretty dangerous. This is a, a commentator who reads the Bible and says, this, obviously what John is saying is slam the door in the face of somebody who you disagree with, but I don't like that, so I'm not going to do it. Well, when we see, that's not the right way to do it, the right way. And, and the commentator himself was pretty well-respected, pretty well-respected scholar. He just didn't understand, in this case, I believe, the, the proper context of this injunction. When you come across a verse of Scripture that seems to run counter to the truth you've already known and been taught, take a second, maybe talk to somebody, do a little research and say, is there another way of reading this verse that lines up with the character of Christ, with everything else I've already learned about what he's taught me. Because if, it's, if it clearly is an arrow pointing in a direction other than all the other arrows are pointing, probably we're misunderstanding it, right? We can't afford to say, yeah, that's what this verse says. I'm just not going to do it. Why am I bringing that up? Because I think that's what a lot of churches do with the gifts of the Spirit. They finally come to the conclusion, you know, there's really no way of reading 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 and coming to any other conclusion than that the gifts have never gone away. We're still not going to do them. You see, we can't afford to be like that. When no Christian can once you realize what the truth of Scripture is. So, uh, if our starting point is that the Bible is God's Word, and therefore profitable for doctrine, reproof, and training in righteousness, we have to contend with the truth that the gifts are real, uh, you know, it's kind of like uh, when Jesus healed. Uh, there, there are a few genuine believers who 
argue that he didn't heal or do other miracles. It's just, uh, is healing still for today? We have to deal with the truth that these gifts were given to the church, not just the apostles. This is overwhelmingly evident in Paul's letter here because he's talking to the Corinthians, the lay people, about their operating in the gifts of the Spirit and how they were to minister to one another using the spiritual gifts. And then where things get sticky and somewhat divisive is recognizing that there is no scriptural reason to believe that these gifts ever went away. We, uh, we dealt already with the passages in uh, 1 Corinthians 13 that talk about, you know, these gifts are going to stop. Prophecies will stop. Tongues will stop. Uh, words of knowledge will stop. They'll fail. They'll disappear. But it also tells us when that will happen, when that which is perfect has come. And that is at the consummation of the kingdom, as is clear from the same passage. You cannot really, it's such a dishonest reading of Scripture to, to pretend that what that means is when we have the whole Bible, you know, with, with a full canon of Scripture. So um, it is worth noting, I haven't mentioned this and I haven't dug deep into it, but some cessationists cling to the notion that the gifts were given to the apostles and those on whom the apostles personally laid their hands. They could also operate in the gifts. So in other words, the gifts were not just for the apostles, but they were for the apostolic age. And so therefore, Paul could deliver these gifts to Timothy or to the Corinthians at large. But once that first generation, once anybody, once Paul was dead and anybody on whom Paul laid hands was dead, then the gifts were gone. And there's a way of reading that argument that almost makes sense. The reason you can just throw it out is because there's not a shred of scriptural evidence that this is the case. It's just not to be found, okay? Now, uh, but, but the idea then was we had to get the church established, and we needed those gifts until we had the, what Peter called, the more sure word of prophecy, which is the word. But again, nothing, nothing in Scripture uh, that bears that out. Not only that, we do have Scripture pointing us the other way, teaching us clearly the other way. We also now have thousands of years of church history that testify to the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit and his gifts. And we have the testimony today of millions of believers who have experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, have spoken in tongues, and can bear witness to the ongoing charismatic experience. All right? We don't base our doctrine on that, but all of these things trace back to a clear reading of the Word of God. Hope that makes sense to you. So, some ministers, they come to the word honestly. They come to the almost grudging conclusion that, yes, there is no good reason to believe that the gifts have been removed, but for all intents and purposes, they simply ignore them. They know better than to teach or preach against the gifts, but they don't want to encourage them either. And frankly, many in churches like ours, even in charismatic churches, who love being part of a church where the gifts are in operation, they have no real desire to operate in the gifts themselves. And that's what I want to talk about briefly before we list the gifts. I draw your attention once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, where it says, But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. And 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. We are to desire these gifts. And why? Because God uses these gifts, uses us, uses these gifts through us 
to edify the church. And he loves the church. And we are to love the church. The gifts are good for the church. And if we love the body of Christ, we should desire these gifts so that we can make the church better. When we come together, uh, our desire should be, at least eventually it should be, what can I do to edify this body, to make this body stronger? The church, of course, meaning the people, not, not the building. I still get mad thinking of a conversation I had not too long after the COVID lockdowns, once we began to meet again. And I was meeting somebody who had stopped coming, even though we were meeting again and, and uh, having a pleasant conversation. Uh, but the guy basically said, and he'd been coming for a long time. He wasn't just, uh, you know, some kind of hanger on out, outsider. Uh, but he told me, he says, it's actually better this way. We got used to watching it online. Uh, and not only that, it's turned out it's better that way because once we're done watching you, we can flip over and watch this minister. And as soon as we're done watching him or her, we can flip over and watch this minister. So the upshot is it's better now because we're getting fed better than we ever have been. Now, and this was said in all kindness, but it revealed, it's, it's, it revealed something. People who are accustomed uh, to serving tend to be more critical because of the tendency to view church through the lens of what's in it for me. Let me put it this way. You getting fed shouldn't be the primary reason you come to church once you reach a certain level of spiritual maturity. When we have a church picnic like we did last week or a family meal, the primary aim of that is not so that you get physical nutrients. It's so that we can fellowship around the table together to enjoy the feast. Every one of you can feed yourself. You do not need to be spoon-fed. Now, if you're new in the faith, yeah, the, the teaching aspect of these services uh, and, and, uh, and getting fed. And, and I'm not saying none of you are being fed. You understand that? I'm saying you should not be starving throughout the week and say, I've got to get to church so I can get the word. You know how to avail yourself of the word, right? Right? You know where faith comes from is from hearing the word of God. You know where to find that. You know how to make yourself hear it. You can open your Bible and read it to yourself. No, when we come together, it's so that we can share our gifts and our ministry with one another. And I'm not just talking about Sunday mornings. This is what should be happening in small groups. I think that's where we need to see an explosion of the gifts in operation. But the whole point is, if your whole view of church is, what am I going to get out of it today? The people who are serving and making things work here that, that it's, it's going to raise some eyebrows among them because they know better. We know better. And that includes most of you because most of you are serving in some capacity. The point I was trying to make is that we should desire spiritual gifts, not just in others, but in ourselves. We should, when we come to church, it's not because, again, there's even a selfish way of looking at that, and we've talked about it and talked about it. When I come to church, what am I getting out of it? Okay, good. I, I, I was buoyed by the, by the time and praise and worship, and I really received a lot from the Word. Uh, and if I get to do a gift, too, that's even better because I got the spotlight on me for a while. It's all the wrong way of looking at it. It's 
What did God use me for today to put something in you, in the body of Christ? What did I do to edify us as a body and any individual in here other than me? And, and that was just kind of a heartbreaking thing to hear from somebody who absolutely should have known better. Uh, it's okay that I'm not coming because I'm still getting fed. What are you doing for the rest of the body if you're not assembling with the body? Okay? Now, uh, Jesus said, I don't know if you've ever heard this verse before, in Mark eleven twenty four, he said, therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, uh, King James, old King James, James says, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Or how about the psalmist, uh, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. If you have a godly desire, pray about it right? When we, when we go back to a few weeks ago when we were talking about how the Holy Spirit leads us, how he guides us, how, what's the way he, one of the ways he does that is by giving us right desires. And I'm, I'm going to re-preach that. You can go back and listen to it, but how there's a way of knowing whether our desires are right. So if I'm wanting something that I'm convinced God wants me to have, what's my next step? Ask him for it. Because if I'm asking for something in accordance with the word of God, I know he hears me. And if I know he hears me, I know that I have the request I'm asking of him. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. How many of us do that? We can come here and say, oh, there might be a word. There might be a prophecy. There might be a tongue and interpretation. There might be a miracle. How many of us are like, I desire to be used by that. So Lord, please open my ears and prepare me. Give me the boldness. Give me the strength. Give me the bravery to speak out a word that you give me, to pray for the people you tell me to pray, to heal the people you tell me to heal. I want to be used any way you desire to use me for the good of this body. It is not enough for us to say, I agree with that scriptural, scripturally, and I'm happy when somebody else does it. We should desire to be used in the most effective way God can use us at any given moment. Let me get a little ahead of myself to chapter 14, and yet all things must be done decently and in order. In case somebody was ready to come up here and start doing something in the middle of my sermon, all right? Now, that's actually another way of answering the question about why God might use an immature believer in the gifts. We kind of touched on that last week. Some mature believers are afraid of appearing undignified or uncouth if they flow in a gift. So God uses those who desire to be used. I don't want to, I don't want to appear uncouth. I don't want to appear undignified. Therefore, I'm not going to desire a spiritual gift because I want to get up there and prophesy or speak in tongues and blow it and look silly. So God says, I'll just use somebody who doesn't care. All right? Now, again, go back and listen to the message about guidance early in this series. Real quick, let's take a look at the nine gifts that are listed in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians because I really am itching to get into chapter 14 next time. They are this, the word of knowledge, word of wisdom, faith, gifts of healings, working of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Okay, there was our quick look at the nine gifts. Now open your Bibles to chapter 14. I'm kidding. We are going to look at these briefly, one by one. And I think we can get through all of them. 
there is a difference. We'll start with the word of wisdom. We'll just take them in the order they appear. I think I got them down here in the right order. There's a difference, first of all, between uh, wisdom and knowledge. Most of you know that. Knowledge must be dug for. God certainly can reveal knowledge, but in this case, we're talking about wisdom. Uh, And we're not talking about wisdom and knowledge. We're talking about words of wisdom, words of knowledge. I'll get there in a second. But most of you know this. Uh, Wisdom is the proper and profitable application of knowledge. I know this. Now, how do I apply this knowledge to my life in a way that blesses me, blesses you, is profitable for all? So a word of wisdom uh, is something that is um, a specific utterance that addresses a problem and offers a solution or provides guidance. Uh, Jesus was questioned about paying taxes. And what did he say? Did he go off on a political rant? No. Operating in godly wisdom, he said, bring me, a, bring me a coin. Whose image is on this coin? Well, that's Caesar's. Well, then give it to Caesar. That's Caesar's coin, give it to Caesar. But you render unto God that which is God's. And whose image is stamped on you, right? That's something we can infer uh, from the text. Now, uh, I also, uh, well, let's, let's look at a, another scriptural example. In Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith." Now, what's, this was a, they were operating in a word of wisdom there. They had a problem. What was the problem? It was an administrative one. They had a charity. They were taking care of, uh, of certain needy uh, people, the widows particularly, who were not being, t- certain, uh, certain background, they felt like they were being ignored. But part of this was because it was growing so quickly. Well, so here's the, the 12, the main dudes, and they're like, man, we could fix this. We have God's heart on this, but God has called us specifically to do this. We've got to be giving ourselves continually to the word so that we're making sure the doctrine stays straight and all this and providing guidance for the whole church. But we don't want to ignore this. So let's get these guys. Let's appoint certain numbers from among yourselves and we'll put them in charge of this. How do we know this was godly wisdom? It pleased the whole multitude and look at the result the number of disciples exploded, and not only were more and more people coming to Christ, even some of the priests were converted and believed. But this was wisdom that came from God and spoken as a word. Let's move on here. Word of knowledge. Again, it's not the gift of knowledge. It's a word of knowledge, an utterance by the Spirit that indicates awareness of something that the speaker could only know by the Spirit of God. Think of Jesus and the woman at the well. This is a great example. Hey, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. 
doggone right you don't have a husband. You've been married five times, and now you're living with a guy you're not married to. Mm -hmm. How did you know that? When you think, well, he's Jesus. He's God. He knows everything. That's not how it worked, is it? Omniscient. God is omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's eternal. But Jesus laid aside the divine attributes, and everything he did, he did as a man empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. With one big difference, he was unencumbered by the sin nature. You and I have access to the exact same Holy Spirit, but we are struggling with our physical members in which there remains some of the stain of the nature of sin. Jesus was unencumbered by that, but he did not know this about the woman at the well because he is all-knowing God. He knew this about the woman at the well because the Holy Spirit at that moment gave him a word of knowledge. Now, uh, another example from Scripture is Peter's confession of the Christ. How do we know that? It was from uh, a word of knowledge and not just something Peter figured out. Because Jesus himself said it. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, Son of the living God. You are blessed, Peter, because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You could only have known this. You could only have made this confession because God revealed that truth to you. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, another great example. Uh, Peter was just made to know that they were lying. Uh, and we'll see, by the way, that sometimes these gifts overlap, and often they work in concert with one another. You know, when Pastor Mike stands up and says, there's somebody here you woke up this morning with, and he names a specific ailment, that's a word of knowledge. We see this. Faith. Again, there's a difference between faith, a measure of which is given to every believer, and the gift of faith, or what Brother Hagen called special faith. This is faith that is needed to step out and do something extraordinary. Water walking faith, fiery furnace faith, lion's den faith, right? Special circumstances call for special faith. And we see this throughout Jesus' ministry, of course. Uh, and not just talking about doing miracles. I'm talking about things like standing before a hostile crowd. Hostile not as in, boo, we don't like you. But hostile as in, let's grab him and throw, off, throw him off a cliff. Let's grab him and stone him. And what does he do? Walks through their midst. That's faith to be able to stand there knowing you're going to walk out of this situation. That's faith to be able to go, to walk toward the agony of the cross even. We also see it in Paul's shipwreck adventure. We see it in the boldness of Peter and John preaching at the temple. We see it today in the lives of those who are called to preach the gospel in dangerous lands. It takes faith to obey God and go someplace where you can't, in the natural, see how you're going to be provided for or protected a great example of the gift of faith, many of you know of, of this man, uh, was a man named George Mueller, who founded several orphanages in England in the late 19th century. He also founded 117 schools. He and his wife cared, and, his, and their team, I guess, cared for over 10,000 orphan children and built millions of dollars worth of facilities. Uh, I'm, I'm talking in 1800s dollars, okay? And that's not adjusted for inflation. Sometimes they sat down to dinner they would gather the children at a particular orphanage. They would sit around the table and they would say grace. They would thank God when there was, not, when there was no food in the house. He always said, by the time we said amen, there would be a knock at the door. And they would open it and there would be food. There would be groceries somebody had dropped off. This happened again and again and again. He never once solicited donations. He didn't put up posters. If he were around today, he wouldn't be put, doing a GoFundMe or a Facebook campaign. He just did what God told him to do, 
and millions of dollars of donations flooded in anyway. God took care of him. He said at one time, and I'm, I'm, I'm uh, paraphrasing here, he says, I can believe God for a million dollars as easily as I can believe him for a meal. Special faith. Uh, sometimes I think this is, this is a hard one to see here in the West because there's so much abundance. We don't have to exercise faith in general, let alone have a gift of special faith uh, to see our needs met because there are so many other options, but I'm not going to go too far down that trail. Gifts of healings, again, who's healing for? Well, it's for whoever, I guess, God manifests a gift in your presence. Healing is for all of us. We are encouraged. We are commanded to believe God, to trust God for our healing. We're all commanded to go out and heal the sick, lay hands on the sick, pray for the sick. Uh, this is something that we don't have to be operating in the gift or a gift of healing to do. We can all go out and do this, and we're supposed to, but uh, when the Holy Spirit manifests a gift of healing, I believe, and I think I've seen, that it creates an atmosphere that makes it easier to receive. Jesus, again, is exhibit A. Uh, you remember, there was a time and a place when he couldn't do it. So he could do there no mighty works, save he healed a few sick people. Uh, and uh, versus most of the time when he's operating in the fullness of the Holy Spirit in places where they didn't know him, where they weren't prejudiced against him and his abilities, they came to him expecting to be healed. There was an atmosphere of faith there that brought that gift into fruition, and he healed them all. Uh, we see it also, uh, a gift of healing, I think, would be an example of this, would be Paul you know, when they brought handkerchiefs and, and aprons to him and he would lay his hands on them and they would carry them away. I don't think this is proscriptive. I don't think that the scripture is telling us to do this. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with it. But it does say God was working extraordinary miracles through the hands of Paul. So that even when they brought these cloths to him, they would carry them away and the people who touched them were healed. Peter's shadow is another example of that. Another manifestation of gifts of healing. Uh, working of miracles, very closely hand-in-hand. Hand. Sometimes it's hard to separate miracles from miraculous healings, but of course Jesus did them. Uh, he did non-healing miracles, walking on the water, a coin in the mouth of the fish, a feeding of the thousands on two occasions, turning water into wine. Uh, Paul with the venomous snake that he shook off. Philip when he baptized the Ethiopian and then disappeared and reappeared in another town. Kind of exciting transported. And, uh, and even, and we, we hear about these things again, we live in a society where it just seems we don't need the miracles as badly because there are so many other options. But there are examples in our, in our time, of course. I don't know how many of you have heard of a Pentecostal minister named Archie Hicks who was traveling with his family to preach and he ran out of gas a hundred miles from his destination. And all he had with him was a gallon of water. He prayed, he poured a gallon of water into the tank and drove 100 miles and preached at that church. That's a miracle. Uh, many, uh, I, I, I've heard from ministers and, and uh, maybe some of you when you've been praying for somebody or, or maybe you've been in a group, you've felt a physical presence push you or guide you. One, one minister used to talk about how he would, he would experience somebody tugging on his sleeve and look down, there's nobody there, but the Holy Spirit is guiding him to pray for somebody in particular. Uh, and also when we talk about uh, miracles and healing, 
you know, we can all believe for healing. And sometimes that healing, much as we wish it weren't that way, is us simply moving toward healing, getting better, recovering, as the Bible said. Uh, and then often when the gift of healing is in operation, not always, but often when the gift of healing is in operation, what we see is an instantaneous, miraculous healing. And I want to see that more and more and more. And boy, you talk about a great reason to desire the best gifts. If there are sick people, if there are dying people in your midst, maybe the best gift for this moment at this time is for you to be able to operate in the gift of healing. And how much do you have to love your brother or your sister? Or how much do you have to not love them if you don't desire to flow in the gift of healing? Why? And it's not, again, it's not so God can establish in you a great healing ministry. It's so that your brother and sister can walk in the healing that God provided for them. Amen? All right. Are you still with me? Okay. Prophecy. There's a lot of confusion here because uh, many people, uh, too many people, uh, prophecy only means predicting the future. And we've pointed this out before. We have whole books written by prophets in the Old Testament. And relatively speaking, very little of that is predicting the future. It's simply the prophets writing and recording how they were speaking prophetically, authoritatively, I have a word from God for you. Now, all scripture is inspired, all right? But the history books aren't like that. The history books that we read, uh, you know, in 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and, uh, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and, you know, in Genesis and the, the early parts where it's telling the story, this is 100% trustworthy because it's the word of God, but it's not a thus saith the Lord to you. It's not an instruction book. It's telling us it is a reliable account of what happened in God's dealings with people. Whereas the prophecy books, by and large, uh, much of them, chunks of them read like sermons that are spoken to the people and ultimately to us. There is some, uh, there is some uh, future, some foretelling in there. Uh, but the bulk of it is simply warnings and instruction and even encouragement to God's people through the mouths of the prophets. And it's the same today. Uh, you know, Jesus essentially spoke prophetically whenever he spoke. Not just when he told of things to come, which he did. Uh, he spoke by direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So did Peter, so did John, so did Paul, so did James. I remember years ago in, in my early youth pastor days, and I used to, I, I love, still do, I love preparing sermons, I love writing them, I love studying for them. But uh, typically, uh, now Canaan Land shook some of this out of me. I got a taste of this at Canaan Land when I had to preach more than I had time to prepare for, or teach more than I had time to prepare for. But once I, I, went, I was back here, uh, and eventually got hired on as youth pastor, I would spend, I would labor over my Wednesday night messages for hours. I would uh, not always rehearse them, but I would know exactly what I'm saying and enjoyed it. I think the kids were blessed, but I remember Joe Morris was here. Maybe I remember Joe Morris. And he was praying and, and speaking prophetically over people. And when he got to me, he said, Scott, God's shown me that you're going to step into a new realm in your ministry where you're going to begin to preach prophetically. And when he said that, I'm like, no, I'm not going to be a Joe Morris. I'm not going to be a prophet. I'm still a teacher. I kind of dug my heels in, uh, but I didn't realize what he was saying until it began to happen. When I would go up there with my notes, and then by what I can only attribute to the power of God and the gifts of the Spirit in operation, begin to speak things 
out of the overflow. These were not things that I had never heard before, but God would supernaturally shake these things together and cause them to come out in fully formed sentences, paragraphs, ideas that that flowed right into the things that I had prepared. I have to tell you, this happens almost every single Sunday. I cannot think of a time when I have ministered to you, when I've shared the word of God with you, where I haven't strayed from my notes and spoken confidently, just as confidently as if I had memorized something because the Holy Spirit is speaking through me. That, in a very real sense, is prophecy. So is when somebody like Doug will come up and bring a word. It's not always strictly a word of knowledge. He doesn't get up here and say, uh, thus saith the Lord, he has shown me something about you or this is going to happen. It's not always necessarily, although it's, it's closer to a word of wisdom, do this. It's more a rhema word. Now, we know the difference, most of us, between logos and rhema, right? Logos, and this is broadly speaking, because these words can be broken down more. Logos, the written word. Rhema, the spoken word. But a f- more fully developed idea behind rhema is the written word spoken. A prophetic word often, many times, is simply somebody sharing a portion of Scripture from their heart that speaks to you and a situation and a moment by the power of God. And again, I'm not picking on Doug. I so appreciate his gift. I'm not trying to embarrass him, but so many times, so much of what he shares when he comes up to deliver a word is Scripture. You notice that? But it's Scripture that fits together and fits together with a particular exhortation. All right? And this is what I think uh, what, what uh, prophecy can be. And I'm not trying to water it down. God certainly can speak through a prophet and say, thus saith the Lord, this is going to happen. Or, unless this happens, this is going to happen. But by and large, to speak prophetically is simply to speak from the heart by the power of the Spirit authoritatively lining up with Scripture. All right? Uh, Now, see, I was doing it just now, and I got completely off my notes. Discerning of spirits. There are two things here, two ways of understanding this, and they're not in competition. I believe they're, they're both true. One is the ability to see into the spirit realm. How many of you know uh, that there are angels in this room right now? How many of you suspect there are demons in this room right now too? I don't think so. I think my powerful prophetic preaching has scared them all away. They are running away with their fingers in their ears because they can't stand it. No, but uh, we, we live in a world that is inhabited by spirits that aren't visible to our natural eyes. And uh, again, this is an example from Brother Hagen. Uh, when he talks about discerning of spirits, he was having a, prayer, a healing line, and somebody was up there because they had a headache, a terrible headache. So he's just speaking the word, thank you, Lord, that this headache is under the blood that Jesus Christ has carried this headache to the cross along with all of our sicknesses and diseases, and we speak to this headache and command it to leave. And he said they looked at this guy, and he saw what looked like this ugly, ugly, bald monkey sitting on the guy's shoulders, squeezing his head. And he realized what I'm dealing with here is not just a sickness, but a demonic presence. So he switched his praying from be healed to, in Jesus' name, let this man loose. Get your hands off of him and be gone. And when he cast this spirit out, the headache went away. But he had to be able to see what this was. Uh, Perhaps more commonly, 
the gift of discerning of spirits is found in the ability to understand or simply supernaturally know of what spirit something or someone is. Um, you know, right after Jesus said to Peter, you're blessed because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And then we starts talking about the, you know, his destiny going to the cross and dying. And Peter says, no, this is never going to happen to you. What did Jesus say to him next? Get behind me, Satan. He understood that Peter was speaking out of his heart that he didn't want Jesus to die. But he also understood that this self-preservation, this self-seeking, uh, the, the spirit behind that was Satan himself. He immediately recognized the source of that idea. I'm going to appeal to you to avoid the cross, but it's not because of anything other than that I love you so much. No, there's still a satanic message behind there. Here's an even better example in Acts chapter, sound better, a different example. In Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 16, and this is Luke writing, now as it happened, we went to prayer. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. Now, isn't it interesting? She's possessed by an evil spirit that is saying, in this case, something that is the truth. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And this is where they wound, wind up in the Philippian jail and are released by an earthquake. Uh, an angel sent by God later that night. But again, it's kind of weird because the girl was apparently saying things that were true, but Paul recognized the danger. This was a girl who had a spirit of divination. She did not, for her masters, typically going around speaking uh, the praises of Jesus, or in any way, spiritual truth. She would tell fortunes, and she made her master's money that way. And, and of course, the word speaks very clearly against that. No spirits of divination, no sorcery, no witchcraft is endorsed by the Bible. So here is this witch, this, this young girl practicing sorcery for the profit of her master's. She starts saying something that is true. Paul recognizes the danger of conflating even something true coming out of the mouth of a source, source she's not, he's not going to say. He can't point. Yes, yeah, listen to this girl. Everything she's saying is true. He's not going to endorse her witchcraft. And he realizes we don't need the endorsement of somebody like this. And he is made to understand that this is a spirit of divination. It's not this girl. It's not the Holy Spirit. So he says, shut up. Come out of her in Jesus' name. He's made to understand not by what she's saying, but simply he understands what is the source of this, what is enabling her to say these things and frees her from that demon. Now, uh, very, we're, we're getting ready to wrap up here. So uh, tongues is the next one on the list, and we talked about tongues our second week, and we will talk about it again. Most of you know what it is. Uh, in its simplest definition, it is simply the ability uh, to bring forth utterances in a language that the speaker has never learned, has no natural way of knowing. And interpretation of tongues is the ability to bring forth that same message in a known language. Uh, it is important to recognize that there is a difference between interpret interpretation and translation. Somebody who gets up 
to interpret in English a message that has just been brought forth in tongues is not giving you a word-for-word translation. They are interpreting the heart of what God is saying. Because I sit there, what are you going to do, a word count? Wait a second. It took the person in tongues 20 seconds to bring that forth, and it only took 10 seconds for the interpretation or vice versa. Uh, There's a number of ways of looking at this, and I'll share a couple with you real quick. Um, One, keep this in mind. And we're going to see this really nailed down in chapter 14 when Paul says, you know, desire, desire mostly that you would prophesy. He who prophesies is better than he who speaks in a tongue unless he interprets. And so if you want to come up with a formula, it's simple. Tongues plus interpretation equals prophecy. So, well, why do we even have tongues and interpretation? I think there's a couple reasons. There, it is a possible, it's always possible, and it's happened many times in this church where somebody speaking in a tongue is speaking in a language that is understood by somebody else. Not supernaturally, but we had, we had somebody here from Russia once recognizing that a word that was brought forth publicly in tongues at least included some Russian language. Uh, it's happened, and that's happened in many, many different congregations. So in that case, it really does serve as a sign. Um, also, I've believed this for years, and take it, with, uh, take it cautiously because I can't spell this out from Scripture. I, I, I don't think it, it, it uh, there's certainly nothing about it that I can see that uh, conflicts with anything in Scripture, and it certainly makes a lot of sense to me, which is this. You might be sitting out there, Startled to find that, oh my goodness, I think God has a word for me to give. And I think I know what it is. I think God wants me to briefly get up and address it, offer a word of encouragement about this situation, about this moment, whatever. But I'm scared. I wonder if now is when I'm supposed to. And about that time, God moves on somebody else to come up and bring forth a message in tongues. And that tongues serves as a prompt for you to come forth and bring the word that he was trying to get you to bring forth. Does that make sense? I have this word. I think this word is the interpretation of the tongue that so-and-so brought forth. So these things, again, they always work in concert with one another. Uh, We do not have, amazingly, an example of Jesus speaking in tongues. We see him operating in the fullness of the Spirit and unlimited gifts, but I don't think we see him speaking in tongues, and we will get into precisely why that is when we are in chapter 14, but it looks like you're going to have to wait a couple weeks. Uh, Praise and worship team, you could be coming up here. You know, Paul himself tackles the subject of tongues in detail, and I think it's most exciting when we look at the clear scriptural difference between praying in tongues and the gift of tongues as a public utterance. Uh, Meanwhile, go ahead and stand up with me. I didn't go, obviously, I mean, we could. This, This series is getting long enough. We probably could. I'm not saying we never will, but we probably won't during this iteration of our series on the Holy Spirit. We could spend a, a, a whole sermon on each one of these gifts and look at them in detail. I wanted to give you an overview on these things, and I think I'm convinced that most of you already under, have a pretty good understanding of those. It's always good to be reminded. And if you have specific questions, or if I said something that was uh, not uh, clearly enough stated for you, let me know. I'll, I'll straighten it out from the pulpit or in an email or something like that. I'll, I'll, I'll do better. Um, 
But meanwhile, I just think it's wonderful to remember that God loves us enough to give us these gifts and doesn't just love us as, okay, I'll save you. I'm going to die for your sins and I'll get you to heaven. It's like he elevates us to a place of effective ministry. I've cleansed you from your sin, and that was really the only thing that stood between us anyway. I've got big plans for you. I'm going to use your strengths and your talents and your intellect and everything else, but even that's not going to be enough. I'm going to give you gifts, supernatural gifts, so that you can minister supernaturally. What do you mean, God? Oh, you'll figure it out. You'll sense it. No. Here they are. It's these nine things. Learn them. Love them. Appreciate them. Desire them. And it's exciting when these things begin to happen in our midst and we see changes take place that normally wouldn't take, that, that might take so much longer. But we receive a word from God. We experience a miracle from God because we are obedient to serve one another by operating in these gifts. That's how much God loves us. And who are those gifts for? They are for his children. Yeah, tongues can serve as a sign to the unbeliever but they are for the edification, the building up, the maturing of the church. These are good things, but they don't belong to the world. They belong to us. And if you want to be us, if you want to be part of the people for whom these gifts are, you need to be born again. An unregenerated man, a person still lost in his or her sin, cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit and therefore cannot operate in the gifts of the Spirit. There are counterfeits out there. That's why people have seances, and it's why they have uh, all sorts. That's why witchcraft is still a very popular hobby among people. I'm talking real witchcraft. I know there was kind of a, what they call the satanic panic of the 80s, and a lot of that was blown out of proportion. But, a lot of, but there's some real, there's nuggets of truth behind all that stuff. And people still are hungry for power, and they do like the, the showmanship of it. And anything that smacks of supernatural or anything beyond our five senses, ooh, it's a, or six senses or however, now they're saying there's 12 or 13 senses. Um, but anything that, that is beyond our natural ability to understand, it, it titillates us, it, it interests us, and not us. We know better. God expects and sees better things of Living Word Family Church, but he doesn't say it's all drudgery, it's all just the natural. He says, oh no, the supernatural is real. But I am God and the only God. The stu there's stuff out there that will hurt you, but it's not as strong as I am. So here's, I do want you to experience the supernatural. I want you to operate in the supernatural between these two guardrails in this context. You don't go beyond that because these things are here for your protection. But it's a wide range of things that you're going to experience if you'll just be obedient and desire them. But you must be born again. So not just for the gifts of the Spirit, but because you want to inherit heaven, because you want to be a part of the family of God and experience his love as you were meant to experience it. Is there anybody here who has never given their life to Christ, who has never acknowledged that the price Jesus Christ paid at the cross was because of your sin? I'm not talking about were you baptized as a child. I'm not talking about did you go through confirmation. I'm talking about have you personally said Dear God, I need to be saved, and I recognize that Jesus is the only one who can save me. I recognize that the cross was for me, and I need that cleansing. I need that blood. I need a new boss. I need a Lord. 
Jesus, save me and be my Lord. If you've never prayed that, the essence of that prayer, now is your time. And if you have prayed that prayer, and I know almost perhaps everybody in this room has, maybe you've walked away from it. It's like, I'm not going to pretend I'm hearing this for the first time, but I haven't lived it. And I want to recommit my life to Jesus Christ. Now's your time to do that. If you are born again in right standing with God, but you are not walking in the power that you read about in the Bible, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Those are three invitations I'm going to make. And I'm going to pray right now. And if you want to come up now and be born again, rededicate your life, or be baptized in the Spirit, come down as soon as I'm done praying while they're singing this song. You got a song, right? All right. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Ghost. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the gifts. Thank you for every good thing you have planned for us, not just in heaven, although we certainly look forward to that, but every way you desire to use us and manifest yourself in our midst here, now, today. Father, it's my prayer, and I believe and am convinced that it is the prayer of every born-again person in this room, that if there's anybody who does not know you as Father, does not, has not experienced your saving power in their lives, that you would convict them of their need for salvation now. Grant them the wisdom to recognize that there is only salvation in the cross. Grant them the humility to submit themselves to that salvation. Grant them the boldness to come down and seize this opportunity in Jesus' name. If there are any believers in here, who have not, they're, they're not struggling with the fact of whether or not they're saved, but they, but, but they are far from you, Lord God. Don't let them waste another minute. Do what only you can do, Holy Spirit, and draw them back into right relationship. And it's my prayer that every believer in here leaves today full of the baptism and empowering of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Come forward and let me pray for you. Don't be embarrassed about it. Everybody in here has done this at one time or another. We just want to celebrate with you. As soon as we start singing, just come and let me pray for you for any one of those things. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website, at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.